0: OCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly.
1: Oh. All right, and good morning to you. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. It's Tuesday, August the 30th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's back in the producer's chair. He'll be the voice on the other end when you call to get in the queue and on the air to talk about whatever's on your mind. If you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial is 273-5211, or elsewhere, it's toll-free long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86 26, so looks like the days are getting noticeably shorter. Now, we're a long way away from the clocks falling back on the 6th of November, but you can really feel it. That said, forecast looks spectacular throughout this week again, and because of it, you wonder whether or not that September looks good in the long-range forecast. Whether the city and the downtown businesses can come to some sort of agreement to extend the pedestrian mall. Look, I know it doesn't work for everybody. It doesn't. But for so many people and what the site is and the experience and the vibe, I personally like it. I wonder if there's any consideration to extending beyond the 5th of September. And here we are the last full week before the students go back to class. Of course, classes begin on the the 7th of September, pardon me. And the two major pools in town are closed, the outdoor pools. Bowering and Bannerman? Someone told me this morning they're both closed already. That seems a little bit odd, but anywho, away we go. So, have been given a couple of shout-outs to some of the champs, and congratulations to all involved in all the baseball and soccer championships over the past weekend. On the baseball front, the Caps team, Caps A, black, they won the under-15A baseball championships. They beat Pasadena in the final. Congratulations to them. A few more soccer shout-outs. So, we mentioned yesterday the boys under-15, champs from St. John's, with a thrilling uh, penalty kick victory over CBS so let's throw in there girls under 13 girls under 15 in the tier one champions girls under 15 tier two and girls under 17 in the premier league premier youth league championships over the weekend bravo if you have a team in your area or whatever sort of accomplishment you'd like to hear about here on the show shout outs happy to give them okay so i don't know if you're watching the us open dave you watching it I'm really into it personally. And we did well yesterday so far as Canadians go. Felix threw on the men's side. Uh, 2019 champion Brianka Andrescu, she's through on the women's side. So is Rebecca Marino and Layla Fernandez. Remember last year at the US Open? She really was the star of the show. She stormed through some of the big seats. Number five, Svidalina. Number three, Osaka. Number two, Sabalenka. Eventually lost to a British teenager, uh, Emirat Kanu, in the final. But Layla's back and she made it through yesterday as well. So, according cool Quartet of Canadians moving on. I'm sure you needed that update. Okay, it was today in history in 1980 that the striking Polish workers of the Solidarity Movement, of course led by Lech Wałęsa, won a victory after a two-month battle fighting over their communist rulers for right to organize. It was a big deal. I can still remember the news clips and the chants coming from the shipyard, the Lenin shipyard in Gdansk, Poland. Solidarność, Solidarność. It was a big deal. It really led to the end of communist rule in Poland. Wałęsa was an, uh, awarded the Nobel Peace Prize back in 1983, and I would imagine most of my buddies who are familiar with the, that era and that story are now giving the solidarity chant in their native Polish this morning. Solidarność. Okay, speaking of labor strife and labor action, the Striking Mount Pearl continues into the eighth week. Remember last week that members of the CUPE representing the striking workers. They burned the final offer coming from the city. Now, if you hear from CUPE and their leader, Sherry Hillier, they talk about the fact that the agreement is a good one. And some of the numbers out there, people will be, I think, asking questions about the strength of the offer. Fair ball. So a 9% raise over four years, $1,000 signing bonus, 18 days of sick leave for new and existing employees, new p- two personal days of leave, also part of that. Sick leave was part of the sticky point in the negotiations earlier. But it all seems to boil back to the fact that there may indeed be safety violations a consequent uh, discipline, to a few, maybe up to 13 of the striking workers. There's one story about a near miss between a garbage truck and some of the strikers. So it just seems to be at a massive standoff. You know what really happens here? Is when both sides at one point are saying they're gonna have a media blackout, they will not be negotiating in public, then consequently, I don't know what the effort is or the motivation, whether it is to just lay the cards on the table, potentially make the union look bad or to make the union look greedy, whatever the city's thought was behind releasing some of these details. Now it's out there, and the war of words is really quite strong, so the city of Mount Pearl, their workers, are still on strike at this moment in time. If you're a part of either side of it, you want to talk about it this morning, let's do it. I'll stick with industry and work. Probably a massive sigh of relief being breathed on the Buren Peninsula. Now it looks like there's a potential buyer for the St. Lawrence Fluorspar mine. It was reactivated back in 2018. There is certainly a strong global market for the mineral, but obviously some infrastructure deficits on the mine site, loading and offloading just being one of them. We don't know who the buyer is, but there's going to be a presentation made in Supreme Court this morning when Canada Fluorspar, who's in receivership, laid off some 250 employees. That made the... Made Resulted in the fact they had $6.5 million to keep the operation warm, while the company and the creditors tried to restructure and tried to bring a new buyer on board. So it looks like that has happened. We'll see what the outcome is in the Supreme Court this morning, but good news for the region. And the market is absolutely there for the product from the St. Lawrence floor spire Mine. So maybe getting back up to full capacity of 250 employees on site or 250-plus and there's lots of financial commitments that Canada Forest Buyers undertaken, not only with their major creditors at Bridging Finance Incorporated, but also with the province. Big numbers. But that's good news for the folks in the area. If you're one of the 250 laid off, and if you want to talk about what you're hearing, what you're seeing in St. Lawrence about that particular issue, let's talk about it. You know, as much as there's a lot of consternation and worry and frustration, there's lots of signs of optimism. When we're talking about the tax base, expanding the tax base, job opportunities, expansion opportunities in various industries. So whether it be the pending business decision made by Equinor to proceed or not out in the Flemish Pass. Some of the mining deals that have been struck, whether it be with Northvolt AB with Valley for some minerals to contribute to the building of electric vehicle batteries and or Volkswagen and Mercedes and tourism, which has had a very good year. As a result, you know full well, there's gonna be more demand for flights. Craig is the PC member, he's talking about the fact that he wants to hear the government talking more about working with the airlines to either reinstate some direct routes that were lost and or to expand the offering. It's hard to say what that really looks like and feels like. Now not all of these flights have the same outcome or impact. You know when WestJet had the direct flight from St. John's to Dublin, they hauled out of here, not because they weren't selling tickets, because they were, the ticket numbers increase year over year, is they had a better deal at Stanfield International Airport in Halifax. So what does it look like to work with the airlines? What role does the airport authority play? Because Mr. Party's not wrong. There will be certainly more appetite for international travel, and even if it's an ongoing concern regarding tourism and or local business people and or people who are coming to the province to do business or to evaluate whether or not they'd like to do more business here in the province, He's right, but how does it look? What does it mean? Is it all about cash on the barrel head? Is it all about supporting the airport authority with reduction in landing fees and other fees that the airlines pay for using St. John's International? But you know full well there's gonna be more demand, and that's a good thing. So maybe I'm cockeyed optimist, but there are lots of bright lights out there, and whether even just some of the potential of hydrogen deals, green hydrogen. Nobody pretends to have all the answers on that front, But there are, when you look through the mining opportunities, green hydrogen, Equinor, the tourism business, which is back on track by the sounds of it and the look of it this particular year. Let's take it on, if you're so inclined, all right? Moving into the inevitable conversation about healthcare. So we've long wanted to know why one doctor or another resigns and leaves the province. You know, without the exit interview, it's hard to try to shore up the gaps that has led to the resignation of a doctor in particular. Now, of course, I I don't and I won't be turning my back to the other healthcare disciplines all the way through the list. You know them as well as I do. LPNs and nurse practitioners and social workers and pharmacists and everybody included. Physician assistants, which we have not introduced to this province, which requires an amendment in the legislation. But there's a doctor now who's resigning and lots of commentary about what he calls the inflexibility of Eastern Health. His name is Dr. Andrew O'Keefe. He's an allergist and a a clinical immunologist. He's been working part-time with the authority since 2014, all the while operating his own community clinic. When he first opened shop back in 2014, working with Eastern Health, there wasn't a clinical uh, immunologist in the province, which is kind of hard to understand. So he did indeed have space at the Janeway, to treat his pediatric patients, all in an effort to work to the full scope of practice, right, as an allergist or an immunologist, but he could not secure the same physical opportunities at the health sciences center and consequently he says if someone could have a severe allergic reaction an anaphylactic reaction it's just safer to do those work those tests those procedures in the hospital where there's more support available if someone gets terribly sick all makes sense to me he does indeed directly refer to the fact that it was about inflexibility and so with the little bits of administrative support required he says the bits of pieces of access that we had that we had to the hospital became less and less and became more and more challenging to provide appropriate patient care. He goes on to use some pretty serious words like morally injurious process, systems failure. But at the end of the day, that gentleman, Dr. Andrew O'Keefe, is out the door. So how does government hear the words like morally injurious, inflexible? You all know the stories, whether it be the doctor on Bell Island who eventually came back for a number of weeks is leaving again. Doctor on, uh, on Fogo Island talking about flexibility, striking a better work-life balance. Everybody in most every profession is looking for the exact same thing, but when we're looking at healthcare workers throughout the entirety of the offerings and the professionals in healthcare, there's something to that. And we're going to hear more and more stories about uh, diversions from emergency rooms. This particular one grabbing headlines this morning is about Bay Vert on the North Coast. So the lady who's spoken to in the story, Jennifer Cram is her name, she has a three-year-old son, severe food allergies. What happens if he goes into anaphylaxis while the emergency room in the community is closed? Again, the closest next opportunity is in Grand Falls, Windsor, about a two-hour drive away. There's actually some reference uh, from first responders in the community that they think it's already cost them a life, you know? So these are massive, big questions. People will just easily say, well, move. And as Jennifer says, I don't want to leave. I have a home here, I have a good job, my husband has a good job. And with all of the factors of life, when we just oversimplify things where if there's a shortcoming for an offering, one or the other, where you live, French immersion in the school, healthcare opportunities, then And to say just simply up and move is easier said than done, to be patently honest. So that's the story today. But these are just a string of different stories from different communities where the long travel and the potential for no ambulance to even be available because of the long round trip. Not only the highway coverage, but of course the offloading that has been part of the conversation for a long time uh, as well. Just an update, Central Health with their pouring through some 3,000 mammography results have identified another error. So, you know, the the downplay of just how few, and that's not my words, you know, there's been few errors identified, the problem becomes the same or similar for all 3,000. It's easy enough to... Say, well, I wasn't impacted, I didn't get the call, but all the while hearing the news story break that there's some technical issues regarding the review of the mammography results that obviously every single person who received one of these tests, whether it be at the James Patton Memorial Hospital, at the Regional Health Center, the Roe Avenue program, then they're all going to be stressed out. So another uh, error or discrepancy has been identified by Dr. Nancy Wadden, who's going through, reading all of the images that were reviewed on a three-megapixel monitor versus the standard screen of five megapixels. There's your update on that, front Lots in healthcare always is. And you've heard me talk about this many times. It's organ donations so apparently given the fact that there's a staffing shortage burnout and all the various factors contributing to healthcare worker shortages the organ donation program which oversees five or six transplants a year in this province has been on hold they're trying to retrain the organ donor coordinators looks like they have the ability and the funding to reopen the services in october of this year five or six transplants sounds like very very few but now remember we don't do transplants in this province now they have indeed been keeping the program going for bringing in tissue for orthopedic and plastic surgeries as required but there's always so much to it like a five or six transplants can also save eight lives per so it's a lot I'm a friend of a a kidney recipient and we talk about organ donations and how important it is now there are some encouraging numbers and hopefully the program gets back on track As of December of last year, MCP reports that some 216,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians have made their intentions known. So that's the process. Not only indicating through MCP you're willing to be an organ and tissue donor, but critically important to speak with your family, let your intentions be known. But the program has been shut throughout the entire calendar year thus far, but hopefully they can get back on track because even one donor goes a long way to improve or to save the life of up to eight different Canadians. Anyway, I thought that was an interesting story. All right. How are we doing on the telephone there this morning, David? This one we've talked about several times regarding monitoring the province's Atlantic salmon rivers. Okay. So the River Guardians, as they're called, it's a federal program. The value of the contract is about $5 million. The River Guardians say not only are there not enough of them that have to cover such a wide swath of geography, but they are hauled off the river before its time. So they say, let's see, the contracts end too early. September 7th in Newfoundland on the island, September 15th in Labrador, weeks before the salmon finish spawning. So the re- province reports that there's about 200-plus fisheries officers and guardians in the province. The department has 129 guardians, including 39 indigenous guardians, but you also know after those se- the dates of 7th and the 15th, there there'd be about 100 fisheries officers. Who knows how prominent or prevalent poaching is, but you know it's way up there. And you also know that the nuisances willing to string a net across the Salmon River are looking at the calendar and saying, the 7th of September, get ready, boys. We're gonna go ahead and net that river. Same thing in the 15th in Labrador. Now, we don't know how common it is, but you know full well, those who are willing to do it, they know these dates. And so this is a federal government contract. The value, I think I said already, was $5 million. If this is a valuable resource, not only as foodstuffs, but for tourism dollars and everything included, and the balance of the ecosystem. To know that full well, the River Guardians come off the river too early in the year just doesn't make a lot of sense. You want to take it on? We can do it. All right, I had a couple more jiggle down here, but between the food insecurity issue, and we spoke to it, I guess yesterday, the numbers are remarkable. 68% of people on social assistance are food insecure. Doesn't mean that they haven't had any food, but they're struggling every single day to come up with creative ways to feed themselves and their family. 26.4% of children in the province have experienced food insecurity in 2021. That's 22,000, approximately 22,000 children. We know what food insecurity means for overall interaction and healthcare costs. So when we try to improve the system, delivery, reducing wait times, the cost of administering what is about a third of the provincial budget, when we have those numbers that are just glaring, you wonder what more anybody's doing, working towards, because they seem to be growing, just as the folks at the food banks. The numbers of their clients coming in the door is a whopping big one. All right. Very quickly, happy birthday to Agnes Elliott. Got a note this morning from your husband, Jerry Stats Elliott, to say happy birthday to you from family and friends, and of course from myself and David Williams. Stats Elliott is a cool guy; does some so lo- much work with, to compile some of the stories and the stats coming from senior hockey in particular. But happy birthday to Agnes. The focus is not on you, Stats. The focus is on the wife. Happy birthday. They've been married almost fifty years. We're on Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is VOCM.com. Let's get a little toe-tap and going. maybe you selected this song this morning. You know, Huey Lewis and the Lewis released The Power of Love today. Thought about it. There was another couple of cool tunes that were released or hit the charts today. But I guess it's because of the band. Today, 1975, with their very first release, kc and the sunshine band hit number one with get down tonight don't go away and welcome back to the show let's start line number two kevin you're on the air hi patty how are you today i'm very well thanks kevin good uh before i
2: say anything i've got to say i'm still in quite a fog from uh covid and i've got lose my way or forget what i was going to say and i, I hope you can pick up the stack for me but uh Paddy, I've lived on Rennies Mill Road, and I'm on Monkstown now, and during the school year, I've seen the traffic backed up past the park on uh, Rennies Mill, and past Mullick on uh, on Monkstown. So you can imagine driving down Monkstown Road, you get past South, you get past Catherine Street, and... That's where that little island is, mm-hmm. and 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 that's where the traffic divides into different lanes. Well, that's one. That's that's just going one way. Uh, the uh, they put a, a little extension to that island and a crosswalk going across Monkstown Road across those double lanes to that little island. That they extended out, and then from that little island, just uh, as and, uh, coming the other way, as we'll say, through Rollins Cross the other way, or just around the, the corner from Rennie's Mill, so you can get over on that side again. But now, I was just wondering, what, what in the, sometimes they're stuck back through the cross anyway, coming towards we'll say Catherine Street, if going around Rollins Cross. What in the world is going to happen? I've already, I'm already seeing it now. They're backing up past Mullick Street now, and school hasn't even started because of that little island, because of that little crosswalk. <laughs> you stop all the traffic that are backed up there by kids going across that crosswalk from going to the lights when the lights turn how far back
1: most are they going to be backed up fair question it's a strange configuration now and when they try to alter it for whatever reasons I don't think it worked I walked through there last Monday left Bannerman Park to make it down towards Water Street to take up the Stanley Cup Parade and trying to navigate it is always going to be fairly dangerous but you're right, the volume of traffic when we get back to more normal post-summer traffic flow and volume, it's going to be congested as ever, no doubt
2: You know, if you if you want to go uh, south through Rollins Cross and say you're already backed up to Catherine Street mm-hmm. and the right turns and a half a dozen cars can make it through, if that before they run into the kids, and they've got to stop there, back up further each time, <laughs> as uh, as the kids make it across there, and nobody's going through the lights. Now coming the other way from Rennie's Mill Road, and you take a a, a right turn up to around to around um, um, uh, around the corner to make the cross then from the little island over to the other side. Well, a lot of those cars going through uh, the the intersection there are taking a right off Ernie's Mill Road. They'll be stopped in their tracks. And so those people coming up Ernie's Mill Road won't be able to stop, won't be able to go. And as I said, I've seen cars now backed up through Rollins Cross, um, blacking blacking off the light, trying to get up that way. So here... Each light turn, either going one way or the other, you're you're going to be totally blocked off. Say if there's three or four kids coming across at different times, you're going to be totally blocked off, and the traffic will be deadlocked there. And if it's deadlocked now, I can only just imagine, even if they came up north past Catherine Street a little ways and put a crosswalk there, and across look at cross chancellor You know, that would be better.
1: Yeah, there's not a ton of easy uh opportunities to skip Rollins Cross either. You can make a few, come down Harvey Road and turn into Georgetown to try to make your way through, as opposed to taking on a Rollins Cross. But I don't think anything's going to change. The volume of traffic will be what it is all the time. And look, the city and certainly intersections like Rollins Cross are simply not designed or equipped to deal with the enormous number of vehicles on our roads. It's just not the way it is, but People need to just mind their bobber there, and that's one of the worries that we always have annually, is for the driving behavior and the attentiveness to not be what it needs to be when we know full well school-aged children are now going to be out back on the streets, maybe a little bit uh, possibly careless and excited to get back into school and maybe distracted with their buddies and what have you. So fair point on that one, Kevin. I think you wanted to talk about one other issue before we run out of time.
2: Yes, um I think a lot of dignity
1: is going out of sports these days. What does that mean?
2: I admit, It means that I look back at days gone by, and perhaps I'm old-fashioned, but I can't imagine, uh, say, Roger Maris or Mickey Mantle coming in and bumping bums and doing little dances and kissing each other and, you know, little routines worked out. I don't know. Perhaps it's perhaps it's the, way, <laughs> the way it's going now. But, you know, uh, they used to spit when they... Uh, uh chewed tobacco now I mean the the good lord they should i think they they should patent them or something you know you got um Beau Bichette who's got two or three different ones, the pea shooter and the five sprayer and then the the manager who's got the big blob over the rail and the pea shooter and you know the kids are going to associate baseball with, with uh,
1: spitting. Well, I don't think that's uh, something new <laughs> in baseball. That and adjusting your jock has been two of, the, oh, yeah. <laughs> two of the features of baseball players. And I was watching a little bit of the Little League World Series, and they mimic the pros. They really do. And it's f- curious that you said Bo Bichette, because the first person came to my mind when you mentioned spitting was Bichette, because uh, <laughs> he's constantly at it. And, you know, with the choreography and what have you, I think sports has become a bigger part entertainment, As opposed to simply about competition, simply about the numbers of runs on the board and the pitches thrown and strikeouts recorded. I think it just has brought in an entertainment factor, which I think has worked for sports. You know, like in the National Football League, when they would be penalizing players for having some of these possibly over the top celebrations, the National Football League became known as the No Fun League. I think young athletes, young fans, they like it. And of course, if they like it, that's the future ticket holder, season ticket holder, future jersey buyer. They're the ones they focus on as much as they do maybe me or you, folks who are fans from years gone by. I don't mind the celebration, like the Blue Jay home run jacket. I kind of think it's fun. What I don't understand is how much time and brain space people have to remember every choreographed handshake they have with every different guy on the team. But uh, I don't mind the fun stuff, to uh, to be honest. Oh, I
2: I just said the greedy. I, I, just, I you know, I, it bothers me. It, it turns me off. And I, I know the entertainment value for the younger ones is fine. But I, uh, you know, I, I can't imagine the, um, in hockey, say, you know, Gordie Howe or Jean Beliveau, Mister, you know, uh, hockey or, or Gordie Howe, and that, you know, going up the, riding up the. I don't know sitting on their hockey stick you know doing fist pumps or or the way they it just seems
3: that
2: you know it was classier it was just a little bit classier George I mean Carter uh, going back to 92 baseball he nearly flew around those bases but I mean he didn't get in there and you know uh, start bumping bums with everybody and <laughs> give it everybody, you know and that was that was a big celebration
1: yeah of course Now 92 Carter would have caught the final out from Timlin and jumped around with a 93 hit the home run touch them all Joe you'll never hit a bigger home run in your life that's yeah. right well, there it yeah. is uh, you yeah. know what the, but there's another side to that era of athletics as well isn't there because as much well a few things we didn't know much about the players then we certainly know too much maybe about players these days and whatever and display I say, and their hairstyles. 100%. Uh, so we know so much about the athletes now. They have incorporated entertainment into their sporting prowess and their competition. But even in eras gone by... Some of the things that we did not see, we wouldn't accept today. Whether it be the smoking in the clubhouse and the drinking, and I mean, some of the stories about battering the wife. No, all these things happen today, but some of the things that were mysterious and we didn't understand, whether it be about celebrities, actors, athletes, and otherwise, that's what kind of made it feel like it was a bit more natural, and it was more about the competition than it was about lifestyle and entertainment and joking around, because we just didn't know a lot about these guys. Versus today, I know way too much about (laughs) Bobachette. <laughs> if i'm being honest but i take your point kevin uh you know it's, it depends on who you are and what you believe in sometimes it depends on you know where you put your dollars if it's entertainment and or potentially you're a fan obviously of baseball in particular over the decades so it has changed for better or worse i'll leave that up to individual opinions but i'm glad you shared yours this morning nice to see the jays bounce back and beat the cubs after getting pummeled by the <laughs> angels though
2: <laughs> they get away with all, though
1: do they ever uh-
2: <laughs> uh, and and also, you know, one time you couldn't spike a football. Now they wait till everybody's gone away from them so the, everybody can see them pretending to swim on the grass. You know, this type of thing. I mean... <laughs> Other sports, their helmets would be full if they if they spit as much as uh, the, uh, some of the hockey players now and some yeah. of the baseball players.
1: <clears throat> I think you you give me Billy White Shoes Johnson versus Barry Sanders, and he just lobs the football to the ref. I mean, I like the, the the attitude. Well, it's not my first touchdown. I don't need to lose my mind and celebrate here. But give me Billy White Shoes Johnson or Terrell Owens with his sharpie and the popcorn and the and the cheerleaders. What, recall, what do What are they called? What the cheerleader shake around? There. I can't, can't get it yeah I can't think pom-poms the cheerleaders pom-poms go. but I mean <laughs> you know I, I kind of enjoy some of that stuff and you you mentioned riding your stick down the middle of the ice that brings upon visions of Tiger Williams to me because um, <laughs> he be, yeah. he was known to be at it Kevin I got to scoot off to the break but I'm really pleased you call this morning thanks a lot right oh thank you Patty take care bye-bye right bye-bye yeah some refer to it as indignities some people think well you know I need or want to be entertained just think about it in hockey Some of the players now that have gone to what they call the Michigan move, the cradle, the puck, carry down their stick, and stuff it up into the top corner as they do a wraparound, some of the older players dislike it, if not hate it. Some of the young fans, they spend half their season trying to figure it out, and they love it. So when Jan Zegris does it, I think a lot of the younger fans, that are just leaping out of their chairs. It may indeed, even, I'm not that old, I'm in my mid-50s, had someone done that in the game that I played in, there may indeed have been a couple of sets of gloves on the ice. Maybe because it was just different, right? All right, let's take a break. Uh, When we come back, we have been talking about financial elder abuse. We had Elizabeth Siegel on from Seniors NL last week. You know, a couple of stories always grab our attention, but whether it be mental, emotional, physical, and financial elder abuse, the stories are rampant. Leo Bunnell, 40-year veteran of the banking business, he was a bank manager out in Clarenville. He sat on a variety of provincial and uh, national advisory boards regarding seniors and aging, does presentations at schools, community groups, and at banks about financial... Uh, financial elder abuse Leo right after this don't go away
0: join us for on target one hour in which Linda Swain examines topics that mean the most to you on target weekday afternoons at one on your VOCM
1: welcome back to the show well Leo Benel, he was 40 years in the banking business over the last 20 he's been working on provincial and federal advisory boards seniors and aging he's the vice chair of random age-friendly communities and he joins us online number seven good morning Leo you're on the air Good morning, Patty. Happy to have you on the show, sir. Thanks for making time.
4: Well, it's been my pleasure really to have a chat this morning, talk about a very important issue uh, about aging and seniors and all the challenges uh, and opportunities, of course, that go with that.
1: The stories are horrific, you know, people work their entire lives and maybe it comes from an era where they trusted more people more freely. And that layer of trust built in, especially when we talked about family members, was unquestioned. Now unfortunately not the case. Inside your presentation, what do you give folks uh, insofar as advice what to look out for, how to protect yourself?
4: Well, certainly to 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 watch for all the warning signs, and, I mean, there are many, many warning signs uh, of uh, of uh, seniors being abused. First of all, I, re- I really think, Patty, that we have to recognize that uh, elder financial abuse is a, st- a systemic issue and really not unique to our Newfoundland society, you know. It is happening nationwide and in fact right across North America as uh populations grow older and are seen as um, targets for opportunity uh, uh, not only by family members but scammers and Certainly, uh, perpetrators look for vu- vulnerability, and they find it in older people. So, as people grow older, there's uh, there's all kinds of opportunities for uh, to be uh, 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 abused uh, financially and and others. Otherwise, you know,
1: with the scammers, uh, older Canadians might be more loath to say no, and so they you know they can be potentially easily encouraged to say, well, this is the bank calling. I have to make a payment. Something late. I don't want to get in yes. trouble. And of course, then they go ahead and do it. And this is not to play the blame game, it's just that these scammers are relentless and they're clever and they have figured out these plays and they work. So you say most cases there are three parties to the crime, it's the victim, it's the perpetrator and the financial ins- institution. Let's yeah. start with the victim. You know, in the one story that grabbed headlines last week, a lady signed or sold the house for a dollar in return for care, she was hospitalized, monies were spent, What to, what's your advice to the victim to put up the protections all the while uh, acknowledging they don't want to seem uh, like they don't trust their family, but protecting number one has got to be the first play. What do you say to the, to the well, potential
4: victims? It, yes, absolutely. And I really, I've, so many cases that I've seen over the years is that sometimes, uh, you know, the victim or the senior really makes decisions that's not well thought out. Uh, you know, one example that comes to mind, you know, and a. Uh, an elderly couple, uh, or the couple had reached retirement age and of course, in our Newfoundland society, there 's always like the house always goes to the son or the youngest son and uh, of course they thought okay let 's uh, let 's uh, let 's um, transfer the house to the son well here here's here 's what played out, and it was not well thought out um, <laughs> You know, they went to the lawyer, they made the transfer, and transferred the house over to, uh, to the son. Meanwhile, mom and dad still lived in the house, paid the city taxes, paid all of the, uh, the operating expenses. Uh, within about a year and a half of this, uh, the father dies. Now, of course, mom still continues to live in the house, and uh, the, the son still owns the house, the son and his wife. Well, within about two years after that, uh, the son dies. Now, the wife, the daughter-in-law, now owns the house that Mom lives into. Well, that's fine she, until one day she came to Mom and says, "You know, you have to pay. You have to start paying rent in the house now. Bear in mind that they once owned, and uh, say, uh, start paying rent." And uh, meanwhile, they still continue to pay the city taxes and the, and the upkeep. Within two years from there, the daughter-in-law comes to mom and says, um, I'm moving out of province and uh, um, I'm selling the house you have to get out. So these are things that get done without really thinking about the implications as to what can happen. And, and, and I see this playing out uh, time and time again, you know. So really it's a matter of, of, of doing it right, thinking it, uh, thinking about the implications and the possibilities of what really could happen. Having these conversations with the f- other family members as to uh, really, uh, you know, where it, go- where it should go from there.
1: Yeah, put all the checks and balances in place. And it's not about offending your family members. It's no. about protecting what's rightfully yours. Mm -hmm. I'm really curious about your perspective as a a veteran of the banking business. There was reference made in the past story about the high turnover at some banks, the closure of some banks in some rural communities. And if you had a financial institution that knew you as a customer, knew your name, knew your habits, could recognize a red flag of of the deposits or withdrawals from your account, you say in this particular story I read that not only did you work about decreasing it, but maybe you stopped it. What role does the bank play?
4: Well, absolutely, it plays a great role, and of course, what we're seeing now uh, in uh, uh, with the bank closures, uh, these conversations are being lost. Uh, there's no opportunities for the senior really to uh, to to talk about uh, issues, and and uh, you know uh, the the the, the, s- the staffing levels at our branches uh, throughout uh, all 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 Canada is not like it used to be, and therefore, uh, you know, some of these situations can't. Spot. I'll share a story with you of a, of, a, of a lady that called me one time and, and uh, just within the last, last year or so, she came home to visit her, uh, her aging father and uh, um, as, as she was talking to her father about uh, financial matters, he said, I'm going to have to change banks uh, that I've dealt with for the last 50 odd years and she said, well, why is this dead? Well, they're charging me too much for money orders. And uh, is money orders. Why would you be uh, why would uh, you be having uh, buying money orders? Well, it turned out that this uh, elderly uh, man, with limited income, on a pension. Really, was uh, being sending money to uh, various uh, organisations in the United States. Now, the question remains: is why should this, should, why shouldn't have this been spotted really at the front line? And I think, with an experienced uh, front line uh, uh, staff, somebody would have picked up on that and says, you know, this. Mr. Smith, we'll call him. Uh, you know, he's buying a lot of money, or is that a, at least it would have the the issue would have been elevated up the line to a uh, to a manage, management officer to just have a conversation. You know, are you sending this? Uh, why are you sending this money? Are you being taken advantage of? So, you know, when you when when you have situations like that, there there are certainly opportunities for the senior to be uh, taken advantage of.
1: Well, of course. I mean, I would also think it would be a selling point for one bank or another to talk publicly about the safeguards. They have in place. I mean, uh, companies like Verifin doing it in the money laundering world for Corporate Canada, Corporate yeah. North America. But if you could have a, a a bank and a commercial say, we understand your business. We would speak with you one on one. We'll put the safeguards in place to utilize the software, the algorithms, whatever it is. We will work with you to protect you. I think that would be a huge upsell, especially when now some trust has been eroded—not in the bank, uh, but in uh, the in society.
4: Absolutely, and I'm glad you brought that up because really, while you know, the Canadian Bankers Association, on behalf of all the financial institutions in Canada, say that there there are um, protections and and education in place. It's really not visible to the uh, to the general public, and this is what I'd like to see: is that there will be more visibility in terms of uh, you know doing community presentations at uh, at uh, 50 plus clubs and how and teaching and creating that awareness, teaching seniors how to better protect themselves. Now, you know, we talk about the uh, branch closures of, uh, of community uh, uh, banks and there is no doubt that the, the closure of bank branches in communities uh, 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 or the relocation of services uh, have a, a disproportionate impact on older people especially those who are uh, not sophisticated on uh, financial matters uh, or they have no uh, family support uh, or elderly customers who just don't have access to the internet or even those um, living in rural areas where the internet speed can be poor or even non-existent. It can be a real challenge for uh, many others uh, uh, you know by this uh, shift to the online technology and and the move to to really uh, shift people to ABM transactions and online transactions, call center conversations. But but I'd also say you know to, to to bring some context to this change, it is un, understand it is in, important to understand that the the banking committee um, sector is at a crossroads as it tries to uh, balance the needs of uh, those who need branch services and those face to face conversations with a, with the growing uh, trend of online banking and, and and you know Patty, it is not unique to Newfoundland. In fact, it is happening. Right Right across the nation and even international, you know, things are happening. Uh, uh, You know, the banking landscape has been uh, changing for a decade or more now. As uh, in-branch transactions have been steadily decreasing, and online banking transactions have, uh, are seeing a substantial jump, as more and more customers adapt to um, the style of banking to manage uh, their finances. And COVID, of course, has certainly confirmed this, mm-hmm. as uh, as people have adapted to uh, the change. And. Uh, it's a trend that's happening nationally, and, uh, you know, if, if for your listeners, just to think about this, if you go into a bank branch on Pension Day uh, 10 years ago, uh, you know, uh, the bank would be filled. Now, what do you see? Maybe just a handful of people in there. No more long lineups. Uh, so the days of bricks and mortar are, are disappearing, and, and uh, it's my belief that uh, this uh, shift will continue and uh, you know, and I, I think I mentioned this earlier, maybe in one of the other interviews, you know, the, another shift is the experience levels and the staffing levels at our community bank branches. The days of career bankers were 25 and 30 years of um, service. Uh, they've all retired, mm-hmm. <laughs> and like a lot of other industries, uh, these personal relationships have also retired with them. And uh, we see this not only in the banking uh, sector, but in all kinds of other uh, service areas. I mean, things have changed dramatically. You know.
1: Let's hope people don't revert to banking with their silly osteopathic, because that's just another level <laughs> of risk you assume. Leo, good to have you on the show. Really appreciate your time, sir. Thank you,
4: and have a great day, sir.
1: Same Bye. to you. Bye-bye. Leo Bonnell, Bye. the vice chair of the Random Age Friendly Community. It's time for a break. Appreciate the patience of those in the queue. Claire, you're up next to talk about the windmills, potential for 164 windmills on the province's west coast. Then we're talking fixed link, love that, river gardens, and on and on we go. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Claire. You're on the air. Yes, uh, I'm up
5: talking about the windmills. Yes, sir. Yeah, uh, I don't see a thing wrong with them. No? It's going to put a lot of work in. There's apparently, there's very little pollution, but yet people are protesting. I yeah. well, got the right to protest. Oh, sure. but, you know, I don't think it's right myself. But, uh, it's going to bring some work, well needed work to Speedmill. Speedmill had uh, some bad hits. The mill closed, the base closed to with, then the two mills closed at Oton. Now it looks like a bit of prosperity coming here. and there's people kicking about us. It wasn't that many, maybe forty five or fifty people. You know, I don't. I don't
1: understand that. Well, I, I can't speak for any of them or all of them, but people have just potentially an issue with what they'll call is the eyesore, and the undeveloped landscape that they're familiar with now and that they enjoy will not be that way when there's 164. And remember, that 164 could possibly triple. So we are talking a fairly significant uh, issue regarding the numbers of uh, wind turbines. I don't know. Whether it be they think it's just the eyes or whether or not they think there's a big noise issue associated with it, even though the technology's changed a lot, they're not as noisy as they once were. Uh, Maybe with people... No, I mean, I, uh, even the people that visited a wind farm on the mainland said the exact same thing, including some of the municipal leaders in Port-a-Port. So, and then they might worry about birds and otherwise, even though the number one killer of birds is cats. It's not... Wind turbines, so it's hard for me to speak for them, but not everybody focuses in on the job creation or the expansion of the tax base. They may just, uh, they may indeed just have a uh, a concern about environmental issues. So it's hard to say, Claire. But I'm getting a feeling that there's more people in favor than there are opposed on the Port of Port Peninsula, just based uh, on, of course, on scientific stuff.
5: Way more. There was only about 45, maybe 50 of them protesting. Okay. I've seen a few of them that I knew. I thought they were well-educated, but I don't know. See, if you got no common sense, you got nothing, see?
1: Yeah, and again, it's hard to say, you know, for some people, for instance, if me and my family, we are all doing okay, everyone's got a job, we're happy and healthy, and we're paying the bills, it's easy enough for me to make my keen focus, and this is not to be disparaging for one person or another, it's easy enough for my focus to be, for instance, on um, the environment. If I am struggling and thinking about I'm going to have to move and my family are all looking for jobs and I think I might get a job here, I'm much more inclined to say, bring it on. So it's all individual circumstances sometimes that leads to the, the thought or the want to protest or to rally in support of. But I can hear it in your voice. You're disappointed with these particular protests. I am.
5: Protests. Yeah. I, am really, I am really disappointed. Like, Speedmill's got a chance to move. I mean, if this all goes ahead, Speedmill's going to Boom, there'd be barrels of work. Like the airport, uh, there was a few against uh, the gentleman taking over the airport.
1: Yeah, Carl Diamond.
5: Carl Diamond, yes, they were against it. I met the man the Gentleman. Now, the town was keeping the airport going to cost of a fortune. Now, he's got a bot and he's going to do something with it. You know, and they pro- some of them over here was against it. Why, I don't know. I can't understand it. But uh, that's like the dock assault. So, I mean, Steve Moore is looking good there now.
1: Yeah, I don't know what I'll, the opposition to the airport there. would be. I mean, because that's just if you're trying to reinstate more flights and they're going to build those drones and they're going to invest in the property and the runway and the fire hall. I'm not sure what the downside is to any of that. If it's not my money, then I wish the man good luck. Whether or not it happens, I, I guess would, we'll all find out.
5: I wish him good luck, too. And, and, you know, this it looks good, but I don't know why people demonstrate, you know, about that. Here we are, front. most of them are from the port of Portland, a few from Stephenville. Here they are out there with the mine in Morocco. I was talking to the public out there to get the washer car train four times a week, and they says the dust in the houses are unreal. You know, I, there was no protesting about that. Mm-hmm. You go up and back a glance here, if you're from with the Indian area,
1: Enough to know where we're talking about in glance, yeah?
5: Yeah, okay. You go up there and the the, the of the corner because, uh, what is it, uh, Cougar?
1: Cougar, pulp and paper, yep.
5: Yeah. Yes. You go up and see the best they got made up there in the woods. It looks like a desert up there, nothing but ruts out the place. Nobody complained about that, no protest. You know, that's what I don't understand. It. Like, uh, it's beyond me, I don't know. But anyway, I'm going to uh, let you go because you're a very busy man.
1: I appreciate you making time for the show. Thanks for the call.
5: And you got a good show. Thanks, Claire. Last time I think I called in. I only called in once second time here was when Baz was on, I think. Oh
1: very well, that's been a while. A
5: few years. Anyway, thank you kindly a good gentleman.
1: Thanks, Claire. Take care. All right, bye-bye. All right, it is time for the news. But, of course, Dave, if you touch base with our callers in the queue, they'll know that we'll be back
0: and speak with them right after this newscast. Do not go away. Got plans for midnight? Bring your VOCM along with the best soundtrack for every night, anywhere. The VOCM All Night Show, midnight on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show.
1: Line two we go. Kevin, you're on the air.
0: Good morning, pal. How are
1: you? Doing okay. How about you?
6: Oh, I'm very good. I just wait to comment on what happened to the uh, uh, Associate Prime Minister in Alberta on the weekend, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, now, I'm not to speak to you before. You know, I've described myself as a political atheist. I have no use for politicians or politics. The last time I voted in an election was the, uh, I lived in Saskatchewan and. They voted Grant Devon out of office. And after Grant Devon left, I swore I'd never vote in an election again. And I haven't. So I got no I got no dogs in the races. You can't blame me for Fury. You can't blame me for Trudeau. Uh, you could blame my parents for uh, John Diefenbaker. But that's as far as I think our family has acted. I don't think any of us ever voted again. Now, what happened on Saturday? Uh, the Associate Prime Minister, uh, there was a chance he, uh, she may be accosted and uh, physically harmed. Well, I, I, I'm not surprised at that, and I tell you why. I blame it all on opposition members. They're on the excuse me. They're on the radio and television and papers every day, and, and as long as they can attack their opponents, say whatever they want about them, get people riled up. Uh, you know, you're going to have things like that. I remember one one Sunday, Evan Solomon, that I thought I had died in under political heaven. He was questioning uh, people about the uh, whatever was going on up on Parliament Hill when they were supporting Nazis. Um, and he, he said that uh, Ms. Freeland, who was I think, at one time the associate leader of the PCs, she was emailing her counterparts in Parliament and saying, how can we blame this on Trudeau? Not, how can we end this, this violence? How can we blame it on Trudeau? So, and I'm not blaming, I'm not blaming the Conservative Party. I'm just blaming the opposition members. Uh, the Liberals have done the same thing. When, when Stephen Harper finally was booted out of office, the Liberals had people believing that Stephen Harper had no use for the people of Atlantic Canada, that we were too lazy to get off our ass and work and pay taxes. And, you know, that is what politics is all about. And um, even here in Newfoundland, I was listening to your program there last week, and Eddie Joyce was on talking about whatever there—whatever is going on in Stephenville, whatever—we signed a contract with the Germans, and Eddie Joyce was talking about this man, Mr. Ridgely. Now, so I don't know Mr. Ridgely from Adam. And I I don't know if he's a a member of of the party, or I don't know if he's working for fury. But after Mr. Joyce finished on your program, all I could see is that this guy originally must be corrupt, and I don't know what he had to do with whatever went on in Stephen's for poor Mr. Ridgely, and I don't know the man. Uh, he was you know I wouldn't I wouldn't you know if 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 people are angry at him well you know blaming on people coming on radio and television and, and, and dragging these poor people through the mud.
1: Well the look, the politics of the day is becoming more and more toxic I will say my the most frustrating part of all of that for me is that let's just say some of the commentary offered by people who are not supporters of the Liberal Party lead people to be whipped into a frenzy and to lash out like this uh, boorish thug did but when anybody is asked regardless of their political leanings or stripes, and they say well, well what about Maxine Bernier well what about Pierre Polia Well, what about Leslie Lewis or what about uh, Jugmeet Singh how about we just stop with what, the whatabouts because if we're willing to accept or to justify that type of behavior, then we're just on a really slippery path that I find to be quite ugly. What he did was pathetic. If that was my mother, I'd be out of my mind, uh, frustrated and angry. So whether it be throwing rocks at the prime minister or the cursing and the outlandish behavior, some of the signs and self-directed at Bernier or Polier or anybody, we're just not doing ourselves any favor. All we're doing is getting emotionally whipped up, angered and frustrated, sometimes by bloody nonsense, sometimes by legitimate policy decisions of the day, but to tell me, well, what about this? What about that? Well, what about it? What's the question that you're trying to answer? ask here? What do you want for an answer? It's either good for one or bad for all. So let's just stop with this stuff. The political discourse is in the toilet. I mean, and now I know that some of the angrier voices and some of the most extreme voices, they get the loudest uh, re- uh, response. They get the loudest applause or condemnation. They are not the I don't know, they're not the majority of society, yeah. but they're loud, and they get the attention. You know, squeaky wheel kind of stuff. So I just think it's all ridiculous, and it's all pathetic. It's one thing to be disgruntled, and to take politicians to task, and we should. But there's a difference between taking someone to task, asking questions, versus what that guy did, versus whatever someone's done it to Bernier, versus throwing rocks at the PM. I mean, to pretend that these are all the same, and, well, what about this, what about that? It's a stupid question, because if we think it's, if we think it's okay then we're on a really dangerous uh, path. If we think it's all bad and it shouldn't happen, well, let's just make that these, the go-to response as opposed to, well, they were mean to my guy. Well, come on. Uh, that's, what, for me, the most frustrating part.
6: Well, you know, Patty, uh, and, and now, um, as I said, I've got no horses in the race. But I'll say this much. The Liberals, when they finished with Stephen Harper, uh, did uh, attack a good man. You know, I did some research on Stephen Harper. I uh, read a lot of articles. And, you know, the way that Stephen Harper treated Jack Layton in Jack Layton's days up on earth was very commendable.
1: Well, yeah. he needed him. Uh, you know, there's something to that, though, because Stephen Harper needed Jack Layton. The NDP, like, people get mad at the deal the liberals that struck yeah. with the NDP now, but the NDP, under Jack Layton's leadership, were a big part of keeping the minority Harper conservative government in place, too. So yeah. we all forget these kinds of things because it's not convenient, doesn't suit what people want to talk about or who they support yeah. or not, but that, that's a verifiable, easy-to-understand issue here. And, you know, someone just sent an email saying, I blame the politicians for the political discourse. Okay, I get it, but... Yeah. We're all, you know, we're all sentient human beings who can think for ourselves. Just because someone wants you to be angry doesn't mean you have to lash out at the first politician close by. I mean, it just no. doesn't mean that. And if that's how you think and feel. Now, this guy here, people say, well, it was staged. He's got a well-documented history of these types of outbursts. And, you yeah. know, even with the people that are around him and videotaping and saying on the way out of whatever that was, a hotel or something, is, you know, that's how you do it. No, it's not. That's exactly how you don't do it. That's exactly the worst thing to do. Because will anybody change their mind? mind will any policies be better considered will there be better outcomes in your province or your community because of that the answer is no it won't in fact it might just make things worse so I thought it was ridiculous and I think it's ridiculous every time I see it regardless who's on the receiving end
6: I agree with you and I you know you also talk about human beings no matter how you feel or you don't feel about fury or Trudeau or you know or even Donald Trump they're human beings, and I think we should take more of a look at that than anything else. And as I said, when Stephen Harper treated Jack Layton like a human being, when Jack Layton had to phone him one morning and say, Stephen, I've got to step aside uh, from the uh, NDP party because my cancer is going to kill me. I have read articles that that Mr. Uh, Harper treated him very, very well and like a human being. And I got a different view of Stephen Harper after that. So I think if we look more at the person than the politician, I think it'd be a heck of a lot better. I thank you this morning for letting me come on and spent for a while and a lot of my friends out there probably are surprised by my good word for Stephen Harper but I do find him a very Christian man and a very good man a politician, I can't stand him as a person, I think he's a wonderful man.
1: Appreciate this, thanks Kevin All right, all the best, bye bye I know. Look, it's perfectly acceptable to dislike, loathe or in your own quiet moments to hate one politician, one party or another, one decision or another. Absolutely right. To protest peaceful assembly, which can indeed include emotions, it can indeed include signs that are pointed, it absolutely will include people voicing their displeasure with one thing or another. Fine. Absolutely right. It's an enshrined protection that we all have and we should cherish it and we should utilize it. But if we can't recognize where we've gone from that to where the line is then we've got ourselves a problem. You know, how can anyone justify any of these types of behaviors? I just don't get it. I just don't get it. And the people say, well, there was no physical violence. He was admittedly shaking and talking about his goosebumps. Don't you think there was the possibility for that to go a step further? We've seen it, it's happened. It's happened in this country. Remember, we glossed over the fact that a disgruntled sausage maker from Saskatchewan stormed in with his pickup truck, armed to the teeth, on the grounds of Rideau Hall. And we all just thought, well, hey, disgruntled. Wait now, isn't it worse than that? And that's just an example that made the news, and Buddy went to prison for it. So every time we think, well, that's okay, and all, you know, I think this may be a bit of a throwaway line, but what if that was your mom, your sister, your mother? Right? Your aunt, your nan. All of a sudden, it would still be okay because you hate Justin Trudeau, really? And you can hate him all you like. I think the Sean is rubbed off, no problem. But some of these things, man, (laughs) to think that they're getting us anywhere, moving us one step forward, is simply patently not true. It's the exact opposite. All right, let's take a break. When we come back, we're going fixed link. Don't go away. Welcome back one more time. Let's go. Line number four, Nathan, you're on the air.
3: Hello, Patty. How's it going?
1: Doing okay. How you doing, Nathan?
3: Good. First time caller here.
1: Welcome to the show.
3: I uh, just wanted to call and talk about my experience a couple weeks ago with the healthcare care system. Um, so, unfortunately, I had a relative and uh, just admitted into palliative care. And it had come time to go for a visit. And I was told right off the bat, obviously, that he's in the emergency room. And I was like, okay, in palliative care in the emergency room, so I'll prepare for that. Mm-hmm. He was lucky enough to get a room. Um, but anyways, what really stuck with me and what I wanted to talk about is walking down the hallway to the emergency room to get, sorry, the hallway of the emergency room to get to my relative's room. The hallway was just lined with beds and patients and their family members. I remember having like turn sideways to get through some of these people and the workers and, but what really stuck with me was there was a gentleman In a bed, I'll call it a bed in the hallway. Right across from like the desk where all the nurses and doctors are monitoring their equipment, taking phone calls, looking at charts. And I just remember him probably, you know, late forties, early fifties, lying on his shoulder, you know, cover pulled up like you would in a hospital bed, just looking at the wall, I guess, trying to get some comfort in that and for some reason that really stuck with me and it just brings back the fact that we are in a problem era right now with our health care and being lucky enough to be a 30 year old man who's healthy you hear about it on the news you say my god that's bad and then you just tend to forget about it because you're living your life but that could be me or you tomorrow or in the next hour so i think it's just a reminder that this is all of our problem, and I don't have all the answers, but I just wanted to bring light to that experience for me.
1: Well, uh, it also brings me back to, because at one point that was my father, on a gurney, in a hallway, in pain, and it it was heartbreaking. So we've all seen it well if anyone who's been back in that portion of the hospital we've we have seen it the overcrowding the numbers of people that are either waiting to be admitted or waiting to be discharged for placement in a long term care home what that means inside emergency rooms is very very real I know that the healthcare professionals they can't just manufacture beds out of thin air but you know, it's, so it's not a blame on them, it's just that where are we? You know, how can it possibly be as prevalent as it is? The time that I saw my dad on the gurney, he was one of, I'm going to say, 10 who were out there in the hall, people going about their, their daily business as healthcare professionals or orderlies or porters or laundry and dietary, whatever, and there they were, right there in the hall. It just didn't seem right. It didn't seem right today, and it's certainly not right. Uh, it didn't seem right then, and certainly not right today.
3: No, definitely, and that's one thing I wanted to make a point, and you already hit it there. Not, not blaming the workers whatsoever. They were actually fantastic in dealing sure. with what they have at their hands to deal with. And, you know, just for me, it was like this man was, and not just him but everybody in the hallway, but this is the man that really just stuck with me. Um, at your most vulnerable moment you're put into a hallway where everybody is there to see you and it just made me think like my goodness if i had a problem right now i would opt to stay home and not even go to seek help when that should be the last thing you do and anyways it's just something i wanted to bring light to because a lot of us just you know like we should be living our lives daily and unless something serious happens we forget about it but it is going on daily and we just don't see it because it's behind those doors
1: 100 percent, nathan i hope uh you and your family are doing well
3: thank you have a good day
1: very same too thanks nathan bye-bye oh boy let's go line number six patty around the air uh
7: good morning patty how are you
1: doing okay thanks how about you
7: Good, good. Uh, before I get started, I just wanted to compliment uh, you and the crew at VOCM. Uh, you're providing a great uh, show and a great service, you know, to the people of Newfoundland and Labrador.
1: Thanks, Pat. The world
7: that want to tune in on internet. Um, yeah, I did want to talk about the uh, fixed link. I would like to, uh, the tunnel under the straight to uh, Belle Isle, right? Straight, straight of Belle Isle to mm-hmm. Labrador. Mm-hmm. I would like to know, uh, get an update from uh, our provincial government as to what they, were doing, what they are doing uh, to, to go after that uh, infrastructure.
2: <clears throat>
7: because uh, right now we have an opportunity where uh, the federal government has established the uh, Transportation Infrastructure Bank and you know uh i believe they've indicated that they are willing to get behind this project but i don't see our province going after it you know um because it's it's a um a major economic driver <clears throat> and also it will um, be a great service you know to labrador uh to the people of labrador who uh, have their. Um, their their health services headquarters is in Saint Anthony, um, and you know with the paved uh, Trans Labrador Highway completely paved, uh, a lot of um, the people of Lake Melville and Labrador West are are using that that uh, link across the straits uh, more and more. You know. Um, so it would be—it's you know a very important, uh, and it would be a great uh, boom and assist to the people of Labrador.
1: It Do would be. The, There's no question yeah. it would be a benefit to the folks who uh, reside in Labrador. The argument made on the yeah. economic upside is that more and more yeah. people would choose to take the longer drive to get into Labrador to take the fixed link across to the island. You know, it's mm-hmm. also a question about reliability of service, whether it be X or Marine Atlantic, but. Uh, beyond the the distinct and obvious benefit to the residents of Labrador, I'm not so sure about the rest of that. People make the argument that, you know, well, the federal liberals in their agenda convention said they see it as a nation building exercise and they pushed it over to the Canada Infrastructure Bank, which has been Mm. a bit of a dismal failure at this point, that particular organization or institution. The provincial liberals have said, you know, and they've gone to the well a couple of times to look for feasibility studies. So it's one of two things at this moment. We either go to the engineers and the companies of the world who can build the tunnels, whether they be in Norway or anybody else to get their number what is it because the last numbers bandied about were I'm not so sure really directly reflective of the cost so let's see who's interested in building it and what type of partnership yes. can be struck and how much the toll might be yeah. to travel across because yeah. at this moment it's just kind of stalled
7: uh, yes, and it shouldn't be solved. You know, uh, like uh, the link uh, should be done in conjunction with the Trans-Canada Highway Standard Highway along the north shore uh, of the Gulf. You know, right now the, the highway goes to uh, kigaska and it's got, uh, got about 350 kilometers left to, to go to, to link up the road to Old Fort and um, you know this this project should be done uh be, with newfoundland labrador quebec and the federal government in conjunction um to to build a trans canada highway standard uh so a straight line from bay, Cam- bay como to uh to old fort quebec is 773 kilometers now old fort is about 50 uh, kilometers roughly from uh, where the tunnel would come in Way goes down to there now. Of course, it would have to be upgraded uh, to uh, to a good highway stand and right into Bay Como, you know. Um, yeah. And I disagree that the the infrastructure bank is, is a dismal failure. I mean, there's uh, a lot money there uh, that are waiting to fund uh, major transportation infrastructures uh you know on the model that the confederation bridge was built to pei 25 years ago But that would be a little bit uh, different,
1: though, wouldn't it, Pat? Just a couple things. We need some partnership and cooperation with the province of Quebec for Route 138, uh, 138, I think it is. But the infrastructure bank, my comment on it is that it has been an institution for years. The only monies that I can remember going out the door are for high-speed rail in Ontario. They're looking at uh, uh, zero-emission buses in Ottawa. They're looking at energy refits in Toronto. But it's still at a look at phase. You would think with the monies that they're sitting on, there would have been more projects. Completed by now. That's why I think it has been a bit of a failure. I don't know if I'm well, being too well, too harsh with uh, it's, that, but.
7: it's my understanding that the the large bridge that was recently built and completed in Montreal across the St. Lawrence River uh, was funded by the Infrastructure Bank, and also the uh, subway system in Calgary as well um, was uh, was funded that way um you know that was my that was my understanding but i know that this um, this uh, fund of money that's that's what it is it's a fund of money it is. That, that is is there and and uh, these uh, private financial institutions are t- to fund a major transportation infrastructure that they know there will be a guaranteed return of uh 50 to 100 million a year you know until the thing is paid off you know yeah um, so- kind of thing and and uh, so so that that would work well uh because it would eliminate uh two ferry systems the one in Quebec that goes uh, along the north shore up to Blossemac and the other one, of course, across the state of Valais would be eliminated. So the, the funding that goes into those could could be diverted to, to the annual payment. And then um, if, uh, if this major transportation route uh, takes a portion of the port of basque traffic, uh, then uh, this, right now the federal government is putting in 100-plus million per year just to cover the operational costs of of the of the the main ferry, uh, Marine Atlantic cr- across the Gulf. So if if um, if this other route uh, takes, say, half, takes two-thirds or a or thir- or third, I-, I meant to say, of the traffic off that route, then there would be uh, possibly $50 million a year uh, freed up there.
1: But would uh, there? I mean, just for purposes of conversation, would that money actually be freed mm-hmm. up? Because Marine Atlantic would still have to run the cost-recovery model of yeah. 65% coming from fares, commercial and yeah. individuals, would still be in yeah. place – so yeah. th- if the ferry still has to run yeah. regardless of capacity, yeah. I don't know how yeah. federal monies are reduced there. Uh, the well, reference reduced
7: because they don't have to run as often. Pat, I mean. But wouldn't would they still? The tra- if this traffic demand isn't there, uh, maybe you know, if they're running three ferries a day, they might be able to run two, okay? Uh, maybe. For for instance, uh, you know, if the demand is there and is not there, you're not going to be running ferries, you know. But but yeah, the ferry route has to be maintained. There is no doubt whether mm-hmm. it's one or two crossings every day, um, but it will have to be maintained at a certain level but um if there's a reduced demand there's there's a reduced uh, in operational costs there's a reduced fuel and uh, they won't need as as much labor, obviously, if they're not if they're not running as many ferries.
1: Yeah, I so just honestly wonder work. whether or not the schedule would change. What would constitute a drop in volume mm-hmm. to do away with a full run per day? I don't know the answer to that question. Just for the, of co- the sake of the sake conversation, people make yeah. reference to the uh, the yeah. Box Bridge, the Confederation Bridge, completed and opened in May 31st of or 1997. So right. that worked but it also comes with an associated cost and proximity to millions of people versus what would be the proximity to far fewer regarding access to the Labrador side of the bridge. Well,
7: actually, actually we have proximity uh, with this highway. Uh, It's, um, okay, roughly 800 kilometers to Bay Bay Como, okay? Mm -hmm. So about an eight-hour drive, roughly. Uh, It's it's a five-hour drive from Bay Como to Quebec City. Um, You go across the bridge in Quebec City, and you have a direct access to the eastern seaboard of the U.S. on a good highway. Uh, You have major highways on both sides of the St. Lawrence River going to Montreal. It's two hours to Montreal. Uh, So we have access and proximity to millions and millions of people. Uh, that would like, that would love to come to Newfoundland and Labrador. Uh, Besides that, it provides a security of access to this province. It's another major transportation route. We will have the ferry, we have the airplanes, and of course we have shipping. Uh, But this is another major transportation route that will benefit the citizens of this province. Uh, tremendously like Tom Kearns in the 1990s was promoting it and he said it was uh, would be the biggest advantage to Newfoundland and Labrador since Confederation Um, you know uh, one one instance of uh, economic activity that uh, that that it would have helped is the Nova shoe plant in uh, Harbour Grace Uh, when that closed out a number of years ago uh, 80 people lost their jobs, and they, the primary reason given for it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, cost, although it was uh, <clears throat> being subsidized uh, up to six million dollars a year by the government to keep that plant in operation. Uh, but it was shut down because uh, because of ferry delays. They could they couldn't meet their uh, just in time delivery of tractor trailer loads of, of boots and shoes going. to... Ontario and the states, because of ice delays, weather delays, etc. Sure. at the ferry, yeah. and so they they couldn't do it. If if they had the the tunnel across the straits, and uh, a thirteen hour drive, fifteen hour drive to Montreal. Wow. Uh, they, they would have that would still be running and probably going even bigger. That's that's just one example. There are many, many others. Yeah. But The high, the, uh, the the high tech industry. Um, it would be much more easier to to establish uh, industries here if employees, you know, have the option of getting in their car and going to uh, Montreal, yeah, or anywhere. In uh, Ontario,
1: I guess uh, it depends where they set up shop. How attractive that would be to a, a company that operates on Water Street, St. John's, certainly different than yeah. it would be on Main Street in Cornerbrook. Brook. Uh, about four thousand.
7: Uh, not pe- much, though. Not much, though. Oh, I know. certainly, it's a, it's a long drive. Uh, oh, yeah, it's a long drive, but people don't mind driving if they if they if it's open to them and they can drive. Like uh, even from St. John's here, uh, they got to drive across to go to the ferry anyway. So, you know, uh either way.
1: Uh, Last comment for me because they're flagging me off to the break even though I'm really enjoying the chat, Pat. Mm-hmm. What is also lost yeah. in this is not just Route 138 is if the, uh, the volume of traffic is what you think it would be, we would have yeah. to make major investment down the Great Northern Peninsula in the highway network. There's yeah. no way oh, yeah. to handle any increased volume of traffic. Of it just could not. Yeah,
7: that, would be, that would be part of it. Yep. Uh, but I also would like to say that most of our goods that are trucked into uh, to the island and, and, uh, of uh, this uh, province. Uh come from Toronto, Montreal uh so uh it would reduce the return trip for a tractor trailer in half it would reduce it in half with uh so obviously it would reduce the expense uh, t- uh tremendously to uh to use the northern trans canada highway route with the tunnel and eliminate the you know roughly uh, 12 hours uh each each way on the ferry by the time you get down there in advance and, and line up you know uh so it would be uh, it would be a major benefit to this province and and, and I would like to hear why, what the, our province is doing to to go after this the opportunity is there to do it you know, let's let's do it and get it done for the people of Labrador and for the people of this province.
1: I think it's, people want to know how it gets built, who pays for it, and yeah, you know, like yeah, economic paid, forecast. We can guess at that all we like. Pardon?
7: It's it's paid it's paid annually uh, by the payment that from the money you save uh, cutting out these ferries and cutting. Uh, hmm. uh, that's that's how it's paid, and the federal government will make the payment. It will not cost the province of this uh, the people of this province any any. New money
1: i'd like to see i'd like this to, province i'd like to hear and see more about that and plus you know, the, it's the same thing well, the it's, pei bridge has it's been not,
7: built for 25 years yeah, but that's not cost not, the that, people of the of pei anything
1: what well, depends on you like, know, if you use the bridge or not. The toll is over fifty bucks for a for well, a fixed well, axle it's, it vehicle. Well, it is fifty.
7: It is fifty right now. It started off at at forty. It's fifty right now. Yeah, for the return trip. But people certainly don't mind paying it. That uh, that bridge is is going full time. You know, uh, and uh, it's busy. And um, if people need, uh, if people have a transportation route. Pay the toll, and right now to go across on a return trip on the ferry on the Strait of Belle Isle is ninety bucks, is around ninety dollars. So I mean, uh, that's a lot more than fifty on the Confederation Bridge.
1: Yeah, it's about four thousand. Know, the traffic is about four thousand per day on the Confederation Bridge. Uh, Pat, we're way over time, but I most certainly yeah. enjoyed the conversation. I'm glad you called. Well,
0: okay, thank you very much, Pat.
1: Take care. Bye bye now. All right, there you go. Break time.
0: Take a break. Join us weekdays from 1230 to 1 p.m. as we discuss anything and everything that's happening now. It's all on the table during your VOCM lunch break.
1: Welcome back, I'm told. I'm not sure it's directly related to the potential for a fixed link to be built. But there's a delegation, including federal government ministers and a certain minister from this province in Norway this week. And, of course, if you heard, like, for instance, from Danny Dumaresk, that's where we have to go to talk about these bridges and links and their expertise and the companies they're in. Okay, let's keep rolling. Line number five, Don, you're on the air. Hi, Don, on five. Program. Okay.
8: But I'd like to make one quick comment on the uh, previous caller, sure. or previous caller who, who talked about the... The problem in the ER room and the lineup of people in the Guernseys in the, in the corridors. That problem, as you know, has been around for years and years and years, and it's never going to go away until our hospital system implements a planning department that will monitor and project the resources required, both physical and human, to
1: meet the changing needs. And the. Just for a quick question on that front, I don't dispute your assertion, mm-hmm. but. How can a forecast of who might present through the emergency room or come via ambulance and or be transferred from a personal care home, long-term care home for hospital type care? Because it doesn't, planning the department does not create more beds. How would your vision work with, when we talk about capacity issues? Because people present in untold and random ways and there's only so many beds inside the building and so many people working in healthcare.
8: A, you have to monitor the history then you do your projections looking at population and uh, other changes and when you do your projections those have to then go to uh, the planning department which will come up with plans to meet those projections and that is not being done in our system and until that is done we'll always be looking in the rearview mirror okay now, the uh, Guardian Program. Mm-hmm. That uh, issue has been brought up to DFO by conservation groups now uh, for years at our annual uh, get together with the uh, conservation and enforcement uh, group. And of course, we are told the same story that there is a hundred. Uh, DFO officers available. And while that answer is not a lie, the truth is those people are are primarily engaged in protecting uh, the the commercial fishery or the fisheries in in the oceans. And a very few hours are actually spent on inland waters. a couple of years back, I uh, quizzed the Chief of Enforcement on this issue, and he quoted me some numbers of hours that uh, DFO spent. And when I drilled deeper with further questions, most of the hours were actually administration hours in setting up the Guardian program. And there was some that were used by special uh, underground teams I don't know if you remember the case at the uh, Bow Waters the power plant there in Deer Lake where they had a sort of a they monitored for a couple of years and then finally laid charges so there is a few hours that they spend at that but once the guardians are laid off then any protection of the rivers are really left to the provincial uh, wildlife uh, and uh, fish and forestry officers. The problem there, of course, is that, you know, that's also the time of year when the hunting season starts, and they have now two things on their plate uh, to be keeping an eye out for. And the, the, the fishy, uh, provincial government doesn't have the primary responsibility for protecting our salmon. That's a federal responsibility. It should be paid for out of the federal budget. Now, Danny Williams did bring this in when he was in there, and it was very helpful. And I must say, the the provincial inland uh, enforcement uh, officers are, are tremendous. Uh, but I believe the federal department are uh, derelict in their in their duty and not fulfilling their mandate of protecting uh, the salmon in the rivers.
1: Well they're not fulfilling it in full so with the fisheries uh, officers or the wildlife officers that are on the provincial payroll you're right they do all kinds of different stuff and have all kinds of different mandates that they need to satisfy the river guardians in particular is straight up federal money it's a federal contract worth about five million dollars this year the assertion is that it's good maybe not enough guardians and they're charged with covering a huge geographical footprint But the contract is up before the time is up. I mean, if we know that on September 7th, they're gone off the rivers on the island, September 15th, they're gone off the rivers in Labrador, folks who would be willing and wanting to poach, they know the dates just as well as I do. So that's the concern here. There's weeks left in the pre-spawn and spawning season, and yet there go the river guardians, whose sole purpose is to monitor these rivers, not to deal with the commercial fishery on the ocean. That's right. So the... Pressure has got to be applied
8: to the Federal Minister of Fisheries. That's where the public should be up in arms and writing letters uh, to the federal members and to the the Federal Minister of Fisheries.
1: No argument here. That's where it belongs. And we've had like Paul White and other guardians on to talk about it and where the responsibility lies. So 100% understood, Don. Would you like to add anything else this morning? No, that's it. Appreciate your time. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's take a break. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, Hillary, Dave, right here. What will I do? Will I take Hillary? Will roll it into the news? Okay, let's do that. Let's go line number eight. Hillary, you're on the air.
9: Good morning, Patty. How are you?
1: Grand, thanks. How about you?
9: Good, thank you. Calling in this morning to discuss the ongoing conversation topic and here as well this morning of the health care situation on yep. uh, Central Health, specifically the Beaver Peninsula, where I'm too. I want to commend Jennifer Cram for yesterday's expression of concerns, uh, both on here and CBC News last night. Um, it was an excellent job done uh, as a mom advocating for her child. And uh, if my late grandfather, Morris Fudgella, was alive today, he can, uh, I guarantee you, he'd be on advocating daily for us here in Green Bay, White Bay. Um, but I, too, am a mother of uh, four and a four-and-a-half-year-old. My daughter starts kindergarten next week. And uh, I tell you, the sleepless nights are starting to pile up, thinking about uh, her and school, one of these diversions, uh, how many we've experienced in the last couple of months, the strain that the diversions have put on families, the industry, like and so on. I work in the mining in the Peninsula. I love my job. I would never wish to leave. I'm not from the peninsula, but I've made it my home for the last eight years. Um, but you know, most people don't realize that like there's currently four active mines on the island portion of the province, and this peninsula is home to two of those. Uh, employing over 500 employees in total here. Uh, One underground, one open pit. There's over 5,000 people living on the peninsula. Um, And, I mean, the the location of La Cie to Grand Falls, which is our our hub where we have to go when we're on uh, diversion, is, you know, it's 227 kilometres one way, and it's it's just unimaginable. Like, some of these positions that people are in, uh, you know, in the industry are high risk. Like I said, underground mining jobs, construction jobs, um, they all operate on a 24-7 basis so they're they're operating around the clock Um, and then not to mention uh, which I don't even have time to go into but the ambulance shortage when we're on a diversion and and the staff shortage here I mean like Jennifer mentioned yesterday, we've had three paramedics leave just this summer that have not been replaced Uh, yet to my knowledge like this peninsula is also home, not even with the money, to fishing industry, fish plants, uh, big forestry and harvestry industry here, the list goes on. And I know much like the rest of the province that, you know, we're in this, this predicament, when is enough? Enough? How long does this go on? This is not temporary anymore. This is lasting, permanent. We'll call it fixed, I guess. I've sat in on, uh, you know, town hall meetings, virtual public uh, meetings um, just this spring, and I mean, I've talked to some, some pretty officials and you know, they have they have guaranteed, Oh, this is temporary and I said, Well, how long is your temporary? Oh no, this you know, this is temporary and I understand we're still using those words but you know, as a mother, how do I go about uh, registering my child now for extracurricular sports when school is that kind of go hockey? We've got a stadium here. It's one of the only last extracurricular things we have in Bayvert left. Um, how can I register for hockey when the fear of injury in this activity, while on diversion could be the means of life or death for her? I mean, with schools starting next week, there's five active schools, open schools on this peninsula. Uh, these children can't be bused to Bayvert, the hub. I mean, there's there's five schools, Westport. La middle Arm. Um, it's unsafe to bus the students fifty kilometers from La to Bayvard. So La has got two schools themselves. Um, but our children are without these basic health care needs and in the event of an emergency at these schools or sports or like I said, hockey or extracurricular activities, God forbid if we're without paramedicine services, which we have been and we you know, then we had to drive to two hundred plus kilometers, we'd never make it. I wouldn't get sixty two kilometers to the Trampkin Highway, let alone grandpa's wouldn't get there.
1: You know, some of the changes that have been made, you know, it's, it's one thing for three collab- collaborative care clinics here in town. I think that's going to work. It's one thing to have dangled some incentives for family doctors to set up shop for three years with a full patient roster. It's a good thing to put some more money available for a doctor to take on a rural emergency room shift. It's a good thing to add seats for the nursing school. Good thing to add seats for Mun's Med School. But does that change anything today? Because your worry is right now. I Wish I, you know, we talk about maximizing scope of practice. We try to cover every angle possible, but when I read newspapers from different provinces right across the country. I'm not even sure that I can see anybody coming up with any better short-term solutions than we're trying here. Like, I don't know what the answer is. And this is not about the politicians in charge of the day. It's not about the liberals or the Tories, because this has been brewing for years and years and years. I wish people actually had ideas about short-term solutions, because I have none. I don't know what we do. I really just do not know. Because if they're struggling in Vancouver, and they're struggling in Edmonton and Winnipeg and Toronto and Montreal and Quebec City and people... Uh, and, uh, I don't know. I really don't know where we go.
9: I agree. Yeah. And like, I understand virtual care is, is the new 2022. That's great. But what's sure. not 2022 is me last week searching home remedies. Home remedies in 2022 for uh, for an earache or own remedies in 2022 for, you know, minor infections that I could get taken care of. I mean, then they say, go to your local emergency department. Sorry, that's closed. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll call the health hub in Gander, Killick in, in Grand Falls. A lady told me last week on the phone, the secretary answered, God love her, but she said, I'm sorry, ma'am, you'll have to try your luck Monday mornings, but in the first five minutes, we're booked up for the entire week. Try 811. I said, okay, I'll give 811 a try. Called them. Nurse practitioner told me we're booking refills only into the second week of september now well my ear infection is today well she said i guess you'll have to just go to grand falls okay wow
1: Here easy enough to say it's not like boiling a juniper stick and making a poultice Definitely is the not. go-to 2022 move at home Anyway, I completely understand your concerns here, Hillary, and I wish we had short-term answers coming from whoever's got them. It doesn't matter to me. The NLMA, the government, the registered nurses union, whoever's got them, let's hear them because even if you say let's hire more staff, the fact of the matter is, where are they? Who are they?
9: are they, too? I agree. Yeah. I just want to finish by encouraging other parents to speak out. We, you know, we've been quiet and silent for way too long. The numbers, the, spat, the like the stats, they're speaking for themselves. Jen had some great uh, stats when she had went on yesterday and stuff um and again you know don't forget to fill up your vehicles you never know when you got to go keep the gas in the vehicles right
1: another good point thank you hillary Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. All right, let's uh, roll into the newscast. When we come back, we're actually talk about nurses and the amount of overtime paid to the registered nurses. Then we're talking about the St. John's Port Authority. We're going to Fogo Island on the ferry. Maybe. Don't go away.
0: Weekday mornings from 530 to 9. Jumpstart your day with Jerry Lynn Mackey and Ben Murphy. Newsmakers, traffic, weather, and more during your VOCM morning show.
1: And welcome back to the program. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Tom. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Good morning to you.
10: I want to start uh, by uh, uh, recognizing that uh, Dr. Lock is going to retire tomorrow. It's going to be his last day of service after teaching for 37 years, eight months. And uh, I know he shaped a lot of young minds and um, and had a lot of – sparked a lot of public debate about the things that we do and how we do it. I know he was, a lot of it is referenced. If you go back through all the reports, his name is highly mentioned, him and as well, his different – uh, collaborators in care, you know, Dr. May and 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 past ones, but you know, I just want to recognize that and thank him for his service.
1: And of course, he would have been involved in some projects that certainly did not go the way they were intended to go. So consequently, you know, when you put your name out there, you get associated with one thing or another as a consultant, especially on financial matters with the province. When it doesn't work, didn't help. But yep, 37 years or so. That I, I got the email from uh, the department chair this morning as well, the Care Group.
10: Um, I also wanted to comment briefly on the uh, Mount Pearl situation uh, with the CUPE uh, union. And, and I think that I'm hoping they're going to all cooler heads will prevail. But I, I did watch the uh, the live broadcast uh, when the counselors all spoke in unison. And, and there's such a great representation of Mount Pearl uh, diaspora as a whole. And, uh, you know, they all spoke passionately and they felt it was a fair deal. And they all spoke to their The responsibility to the taxpayers, recognizing that any money that they – any raises they give has to come directly from the taxpayers. Uh, They're talking about moving money around and trying to balance the budget by trying to minimize taxpayer increases, but but it's real. And for those who are really struggling, um, every extra dollar, every six months or every year, however they pay their taxes, is significant however they all spoke in unison about these public health safety uh, or occupational health and safety issues they obviously feel very strongly about it and i really feel that the uh, union is doing itself a disservice by not uh, taking that on the chin and recognizing that they need to set the standard for their employees and for all the employees in the province as to what is acceptable or not i don't i really don't believe that the councillors would be making such a stand if they didn't feel like it was a legitimate um safety issue and for the head of the local to say it's just union it's just normal strike activities maybe that was in the past but i'd like to think from an occupational health and safety that that what's in the past in the past but right now our people are the most important and we're not like we're talking about firing anyone or there being any really you know significant reprimands it comes down to a letter in your file You know, which if if you're a good employee, that's not going to matter. I mean, if you're if you have other safety issues on your file, well, then that shows a pattern. But that's a different story altogether.
1: Well, this. Contract standoff at this moment in time seems to be entirely about the discipline facing some maybe 13 people, maybe fewer than that. But they all say, I mean, Sherry Hillier says that the financial terms are most acceptable. So I guess we find ourselves at a personal loggerhead as opposed to sick days or rate of pay increases or anything else under the sun. But anyway, we'll see what happens.
10: Yeah, hope we can move past that. I spoke to a business owner yesterday who was, as she was serving me, uh, she was making product, serving me, serving other customers, the only employee in the store, and uh, she was lamenting how she had to go back to her full-time job because she uh, she had a job that was 40 hours a week, and her employer said, well, you can't work 40 hours a week and work 40 hours running your store, but she's unable to get people to work. She had some great students who were gonna work part time, but um, and this is where things are coming full circle. Their parents are paying all their bills and they they choose to want to enjoy um, you know, their school time. And I guess you really can't fault them necessarily, but everything is connected and, and I and I know firsthand, having experienced it, there is that balance between parents encouraging their children to make their own way and to earn their own money and learn the value of a dollar, but also without compromising on their education but there's a balance there and there's lots of us who worked our way through university or high school and you know there are studies that indicate that when you have a part-time job you actually do better in school because you it forces you to be a little bit more organized with your time and your time management
1: yeah i'm mean, fair enough my boys work through but that's just my crowd so i can't speak for everybody else tom i know you want to talk about uh, nurses over time let's get to that okay sure
10: so you know one of the things I think we all suffer from when we have these things are very emotional discussions and there's lack of data and and I don't know who controls the data. I mean I don't know why. I mean it's very it's very accessible to probably both the unions but definitely to the uh to the different government departments when they're having these discussions. But you can't find out I mean we hear about how much overtime nurses are working. And I know they are. And and you know, if you go to the sunshine list, you can see because it's broken down. You can see the overtime. So I, I you know, over the weekend I was berry picking, and I thought to myself, I wonder, I wonder like, what will what will the sunshine list? How will that help us determine like how overwork we hear about? We hear about these twenty four hour shifts. We hear about being mandated to work. And and I know a lot of nurses, and and a lot of you know they love their job. I don't hear anybody complaining. But I know that that these are real. So in the sunshine list, it's very evident. You can look through it, and and there are some nurses there working extreme amounts of overtime. Like there's one nurse who works, worked $108,000 in overtime. So, so that person is obviously doing a yeoman service.
1: I find the sunshine list to be fairly useless, to be honest with you. Um, For starters, we don't know how long you've been working, your level of education, your job description. We just have a number. And sometimes, you know, if someone is a captain fourth grade on a ferry or something and he makes whatever, that just tells a little tiny piece of the puzzle. But the numbers are out there for nurses' overtime. In the fiscal year 2020 to 2021, RNs made uh, about $28.5 million in overtime, another 2.1 in pandemic-related overtime, whatever that means. LPNs. Uh, Overtime is about $5.5 million. Uh, So we're talking just as well over $28 million in overtime expenses for just those two. And then they go on to talk about how many IRNs are in the province, how many members are working in Eastern Health, and on and on it goes. So I have those numbers.
10: Yeah, well, I looked into, you know, this is where I dove into it. I looked at the total number of nurses, 5,300. The total number on the Sunshine List, 615. The average base salary of those on the Sunshine List, 85,000. The average hours worked overtime, and, and this is using an average hourly pay of forty-one ten. The average hours worked overtime by ones on the sun list was two hundred twenty-nine, and that works out to be four point four hours per week. And then when you dig down deeper, ninety um, percent of them worked less than eight hours extra per week. Fifty-seven percent less than four hours extra per week. So what I'd like to know, what I what I'd like to publicly call for is. Take the emotion out of it, give us the numbers that numbers of hours on average that our nurses are working, and on average how much overtime they're working, and then break it down by departments, because there's lots of nurses who um, who are in departments that probably there's not a lot of overtime and perhaps we could get into premium for those those the different departments that are really, really needing the overtime. Because the other thing I reflect upon is Within government and within the public service, there was all there was. There was usually a division. There was a sense of urgency in, in certain departments that were licensed health and safety. And then, you know, when the federal government reduced it from was it 900 days to 90 days, the approval for an offshore oil project, for example. So, so obviously that was a something they could snap their fingers, and there was a greater sense of urgency. And it happened just like when they roll CERB out. You know, governments can operate at two speeds, but health and safety was always at the speed of an emergency. And then during COVID, we I don't know if we consciously did this, but we sent a message to all our valuable people that work in those in those fields and said, It is not the end of the world if people suffer. It is not the end of the world if people die. And that has changed who said, the mentality. Who said that? Well, unconsciously, by sending by by looking at our by by, by saying that we're gonna shut clinics down. By, sharing, by saying no matter where, no matter what the situation was no matter how flexible or inflexible we could be um, we, we sent a message that we knew that people were suffering and people who had already been diagnosed they were getting their treatments but the diagnosis is slowed down and, and it, we basically just sent a message that it wasn't as as important as we used to think it was and now that is what's causing that is the main contributor. These closing of hospitals—it's a—it's a mindset change. It,
1: is it? I mean, doesn't I that doesn't that eliminate some of the other contributing factors? You know, you can hear from nurses when surveyed, talking about how they're treated uh, as it pertains to whether or not they're going to leave their full-time permanent job, go on the casual list, whether they're going to move on to another career. I think there's more to it than what you just said. Plus, the issue regarding the numbers of nurses and how you break it down and what departments they're working in—I think the most important breakdown would be how many of them are full-time permanent how many are casual the casual nurse has no need to uh, they're not obliged to work they're not obliged to work overtime so that to me would be probably the most important important breakdown and just like I need exit interviews for doctors we would like to know exactly why a nurse chooses to be on the casual list is it straight up work-life balance is it straight up trying to make time for family is it straight up time to take care of your elderly loved ones because there's a huge difference in being full-time permanent and the obligations you have versus being casual that's the number one break Town I'd like to see.
10: I, you know, I you know, I reflect upon it and you know, when I look at a volunteer fire fighter in one of the communities that is served by volunteer fire fighters, obviously that affects their work life balance. And it's difficult. You know, when we look around it, we need these very important people and I know we appreciate them, we value them. And and but the reality is whether you were a nurse fifty or sixty years ago working in a small community and you were doing the doctor's work and the midwife's work and all the works Um, Or you weren't. I mean, I don't know how we get back to the fact that we need people and money is not the solution because people are making enough money. Most of these people are making enough money. I mean, everybody can always have more money, but they're now choosing leisure over making earning more money. And I just don't know how we get back to the point where we realize that it's important that that. We need we need all these people, whether they're paramedics or they're LPNs or they're RNs or they're doctors or, or all the different roles. And and I you know I, I, I my message isn't so much. I mean whatever you tell yourself, you're right. I mean you know your self talk or the watercolor talk or your, community talk, it's all correct. It's either doom and gloom or it's or we're going you know everything's going gangbusters or I'm overworked or I'm not overworked. And whether it's a small organization like a small business or a large organization like like Eastern Health whatever the overall conversation is, whatever everybody believes, they tell themselves. I mean, I reflect a lot upon how, you know, nurses are stressed and paramedics and firefighters and all the different people are, are you know, they have, they're experiencing all these traumas because their jobs are hard. But what's lost from the conversation is that independent from all that, their lives are hard, just like a lot of other people's lives who are listening to the show right now are hard. And and, and I know nurses who that's the best part of their life. Like, I know a nurse who went through a divorce and and had all kinds of challenges, but going to work was was her savior. That's where she found support. Well, I I know a nurse that
1: left the profession, in full, done, didn't want to do it anymore after 20 years on the job, that was that. So I guess it's so individual that, and you know, I think you said, whatever you tell yourself is true, plus not everyone, you know, Whatever making enough money means, I guess, is also very individual, depending on your lifestyle or circumstance, your spouse or your partner lost their job or the kids need braces or whatever is going on in their world. So anyway, Tom, I appreciate this. I'm off to the break, but uh, thanks for calling this morning. Take care, everyone. Stay safe. You too. Bye bye. All right, when we come back, the president of the FFAW, Keith Sullivan, is in the queue to talk about mackerel. Then we're speaking with you about whatever's on your mind. Don't go away. Welcome back. Let's go to line number three. Say good morning to the president of the FFAW, Keith Sullivan. Keith, you're on the air.
11: Yes. Good morning to you, Patty, and all listeners. Good morning to you. Uh, yes, as you said uh, before the break, I wanted to talk about about mackerel today. And uh, so it's just one of the many fisheries that we, we have in the province. And as some people would know, that This year, uh, prior to the season, Minister Murray uh, put a moratorium, closed this fishery completely, uh, this was on on the backdrop of the FFAW members for years, highlighting the inadequacies of science, and there's quite literally hundreds and hundreds of hours of work by FFAW members and staff to propose science pro- projects, push and lobby for science work where DFO were ignoring what was happening off the coast of Newfoundland and, uh, and certainly Labrador now too. We're seeing more of an expansion there. So in the face of that, we saw this government and DFO just close a fishery, put people out of work instead of doing the required science work. So when you talk about more evidence-based and, you know, government are going to make evidence-based decisions, this is a time where we've gone backwards. And what we've seen this year and people all uh, who've spent time underwater around this province are seeing what they describe as record numbers of fish and just missed opportunity and you know that's tough on people
1: well the latest science is from 2019 and there's a distinct well there's a thought out there that understanding whether or not we have different stocks one off the east coast of this province one in the gulf or along the eastern seaboard of the united states because it's a migratory fish they're not always in the same part of the same bay every time so what Wondering which stock is which, or if they're both the same, or if they're too distinct, and their migratory patterns have changed, and the latest science is as old as 19. Decent questions.
11: Yeah, absolutely, and they're, they're all fair questions. And I think we've observed less uh, less mackerel in the Gulf and more off the northeast coast of, of Newfoundland in particular, and well, all around the province really, but this is a, a, a migratory stock, like you say, even according to the latest science. So Canada's closed, uh, closed the fishery. Historically, Canada caught much more than their counterparts in the United States. But the U.S. can still go out and catch 12 million pounds of mackerel. It's really, really senseless how the government have dealt with this. And the most galling part of it, as you point out, is, OK, there's questions on science. I the department has the responsibility to do the work, and we have, uh, you know, uh, all kinds of well-thought-out proposal, detailed proposal, significant work, volunteer work by harvesters, and you know meeting after meeting after meeting. And then, uh, you know, some people would be really upset now where harvesters are so frustrated, see so much mackerel. If someone ends up uh, protesting or, or demonstrating, oh, yeah, that scene is kind of shocking. But, I mean, this government is not listening to, and the minister is not listening to reason and logic and really letting people people down. Uh, you know, it's a good opportunity for work. We can fish sustainably, and that's really what we're, we're looking for. But it's so frustrating. Frustrating when the work is not done, and it's easier just to shut things down, throw people out of work, than actually get the questions answered that need to be answered to manage the stock.
1: What's the landed value of mackerel? I mean, I know it's not snow crab or shrimp or anything, but we've got to be in the neighborhood of uh, five, six, seven million dollars or something just on mackerel alone for the very short season. What is it?
11: Yeah, it's it's fluctuated in in you know the 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 two thousands uh, for a lot of years we're we're landing probably you know. Uh, yeah. You know, tens and tens of millions a pound, so it was, you know, up over over $10 million. And like last year, we we would have been closer to uh, the 10 million pounds landed. So, I mean, you're probably right around, I don't have the, the, the number on the tip of my fingers, but close 4 or 5 million in that range so and it's a fair amount of work you know we have short seasons for those more valuable uh, species like like crab or something but this is important uh, work for for the communities and and people want to want to do this work and there's good opportunities for us to be diversified so that's uh, that something really has to be done we're looking for uh, immediately meetings with uh, again, based on what people are seeing on the water, meetings with the federal minister. Obviously, we got to get uh, our, our MPs on side. You know, this has gone on too long without being adequately adequately addressed.
1: Fair enough. And I know you want to talk about uh, a couple of specific people, individuals, before we run out of time.
11: Uh, I do. Yeah, specifically, I haven't talked uh, with you in, in a few weeks, but I think it's important to, to acknowledge that we lost, uh, you know, a real uh, uh, leader in the province a champion for workers in the fishery rural areas in particular when uh, Reg Anstey died uh, certainly a few weeks back you know a lot of people remember Reg for uh you know just been such a just a, a staunch uh leader you know from my experience with him you know it was just tremendously measured and great advice and was seen as a builder things like One Ocean for example and then he, uh, you know, besides his work with the FFAW, went on to uh, be the president of Newfoundland and Labrador Federation of Labor, and you know, so just send the, the, the condolences, obviously, to the family and just a, a reminder of the work that Reg has done for the people and, uh, and the province as a whole, and he'll certainly be missed by many.
1: I liked Reg. He was very kind and generous with his time with me, and of course he was the chair of the independent price-setting price panel as well, so he's got a long contribution To labour on a a variety of fronts here in the province, no doubt. And he was at the CNLOPB too, right? Yeah.
11: Yeah, at CNLOPB as well. So yeah, someone who was, you know, you know, you certainly count when Reg was around the table that you know people of the province and workers that consider, you know, that angle was going to be considered all the time. So you know, and like said, he continued to work. uh, Right up to this year, you know, contributing to the province when he didn't necessarily have to be doing it.
1: Fair ball. And also congratulations coming in the next one, I think.
11: Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, right along that team, a a former Newfoundland and Labrador uh, Federation of Labor president, uh, an FFAW member, and a real leader for the province uh, was elected uh president of uniform. we all know uh, lana, lana Payne uh, the work she 's done here and now with Unifor, which is the largest private sector union in the country so really uh, amazing accomplishments you know for for Lana Payne personally, but I think uh, it certainly goes to show that the work she did in this province and then beyond and I think the the people Canadian people and members of UNIFOR specifically are, you know, are, are very fortunate to have someone like Lana in that role. So, you know, it's just uh, it was a you know fantastic uh, week when. Lana got elected. Now, like everything else, it's down to the business and get work done. But I think we can all move forward with a lot of confidence that uh, we have a, have a great leader in Lana Payne.
1: Hotly contested race, too, and some interesting overlaps of her former position and then calling for the investigation into Mr. Diaz, which, of course, everyone knows that story. Uh, good to have you on, Keith. Appreciate the time. All right. Thank you so much, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care. Keith Sullivan, president of the FFAW. We're going to come back and talk Fogo Allen Ferry. Appreciate the patience of both callers. Chris Bussey's there also to talk about what's happening out at the port
0: of St. John's. Don't go away. Every Saturday is perfect for a night at the cabin. The cabin party with Brian O'Connell. Saturday night starting at 7 p.m. on
1: VOCM. Uh, welcome back. Let's go line number two. Eugene, you're on the air.
12: Good morning, Patty. Good morning. How are you doing? Not too bad, you? Not too bad, Patty. Boy, thank you for taking my call. Thank you to David for taking my call. And thank you to VOCM for giving me the opportunity to get on and voice my concern on behalf of the public. And, Paddy, uh, I've been <laughs> trying to get on since quarter after nine, as you know. And uh, I, I'm not on for publicity. I'm on because I care. And I'm trying to save a life. And if I save one life, that's the reason why I'm on the open line show. And I've been involved with this ever since back in 2009. But, Paddy, what I'm trying to do is uh, we, we got a problem here on the island. We got a problem. We're down to one ferry now, which makes it even worse. And thank you to VOCM for putting the information on the, on the morning show about the, the, the Beaumont down, down to one ferry because that's something new, they, like they does in and other places, but they don't do well. I don't know who made sure that that happened. I know I have complained, but it's happening. And thank you, VOCM. Really appreciate it. But anyway, what's happened, Patty? I've been complaining for a long time. I to start that uh, Air Ambulance Medical Transport Advocacy Group in March of 2018. And the concern then was that the Air Ambulance servicing the province wasn't sufficient. Since then, we have gained some ground. We have added an Air Ambulance. And we've got four in the system now, which is wonderful. And we have added in medical personnel, which is wonderful. And all these things are helpful. And the system, I do believe, is a lot better than it was back in March of 2018. But there's still room for improvement, and I'm not going to give you any details on it right now because I've got a lot to cover, and I'm going to try to do it as fast as I can. But uh, uh, right now, I've been, you know, and the public know out there, that I've been complaining as the Air Amnesty Medical Transfer Group, uh, like uh, ch- a chair of that group, I, I've been, we've been trying to get Air Ambulance coverage for Fogo Island. We get it for the other parts of the island and Labrador. I know I do the flights every morning, and I know I cover the flights. Uh, but we don't get it to Fogo Island. And now, more important than ever, because the public has been to my attention, and even the crew on the boat have brought it to my attention, why are we using the ferry at night and shaking up everyone's schedule the next morning, doctor's appointments, uh, dialysis, and the list goes on, catching flights the gander? Why would that be happening when we got an airstrip here, as well as St. Andrews, as well as Marystown, or anywhere else, and not complaining because it's wonderful that they're using these places? They will not use for Guam. Now, I was thinking, I was thinking it could be the doctor that was here, my doctor actually. Right, but he's gone now, so it's not that and we don't have a full time doctor now, we got part time doctors coming and going. So and that's that makes it more important than ever to use that air ambulance. In the last few days they've used the, the ferry three times at night. So what's what's happening there, like I said, it shakes off everyone's schedule. So not only that is why would you take a road ambulance that's gonna take three hours plus when you can take a air ambulance at a St. John's, 30, 35 minutes, they can be here. They can have the, the patient gone off to Gander or wherever. Why aren't we using it? I want to put the challenge out there, Patty. I want to put the challenge out there to Minister Osborne, to our MHA, Derek Bragg, to the, the Central Elt, to the administration at the Fogo Hospital, and to our mayor. Please. And to you, Patty, because I tell you, you're a smart man. You digs up a lot of stuff. Try to find out why they won't call an air ambulance and they call the ferry. There's got to be a reason. They haven't told me. They, right? And, you know, so I've been involved with this for, ever since the spring of 2018. They will not. I, I'd say they've used it probably five or six times in the last five years. I mean, why? The ambulance is there as well as it is for anywhere else. They will not call. So, Patty, my my plea today is, please, someone, I'm challenging these people that I just mentioned, including you, try to find out why an air ambulance is not called and the ferry is called, because what's going to happen one of those days? Pray God it won't, but someone is going to die on that ferry in the back of a road ambulance. And I'm praying that that
13: won't happen. So I care.
1: We're happy to take up the challenge, why not? Uh, and insofar as the other people you challenge, they're welcome to speak to it here on the show. Uh, I appreciate this this morning, Eugene. Thanks for the time and the patience.
12: Thank you, Patty. If you could get an answer on that, brother, I really appreciate it, and I'm sure the public would. Thank you very much.
1: You're welcome. Bye-bye. Have
12: a good day. Bye. You
1: too. Uh, will I take Chris? Yes. Uh, Chris Bussey is the regional VP of the Union of Canadian Transportation Employees. Good morning, Chris. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. How are you today? Grand today. Thanks. How about you?
14: I'm not too bad, Patty. I, I just wanted to give you an update. Uh, we spoke a couple of weeks ago regarding um, the uh, collective bargaining, labour relations, potential striker lockout at uh, St. John, St. John's court Authority.
7: Mm-hmm.
14: And just wanted to give you a little update. Uh, both, both sides met uh, last week, uh, called together by the, the federal mediator to see if there was a a change or a crack in, in any position, and as you will recall, the employer was uh, basically holding the what has been negotiated as a collective agreement uh, on a condition of the union removing some grievances, and that wasn't uh, acceptable to us. So, uh, we, we, we met met with the, the conciliation officer, and there were no change in, in the positions. Um, what, what the union did after that, we offered to take the outstanding issue to binding arbitration uh, if the employer jointly agreed. Um, that that didn't happen, and uh, the union filed a an unfair labor practice around bargaining that uh, the employer was interfering with the ability of the union to bargain by not allowing leave for employees and communicating directly with the employees. So since since then, I understand that the uh, the employer is removing the condition to drop the grievances, but uh, insisting on a change in the language that uh, that supports their argument towards the grievance. And what what I think is, and, and hearing some of the conversation this morning around overtime and work-life balance, and that, what I think is important here, and what's at the heart of the issue here, is is really a. Uh, you know, a, a work-life balance type situation. And it's a situation where the, the Port Authority has a has a phone number uh, listed on their website and it's, it's the Harbour Master phone. And, and they want a service that's available to everybody, uh, whether you're a tenant or whether you're a, uh, someone uh, operating a boat or someone calling in from the public with a concern of something they see in the port. But they want to have public access to uh, to port authority uh representative and and how they do that is they take a phone number and and they assign standby duty for that phone for a full week 24 7 and and they're sharing that between one of the managers and, and two of our members so the compensation for for having that phone for the week is is one hour pay for every eight hours on standby and then uh you know, under the under the same article on overtime, any work performed outside your normal hours of work is is overtime. And, and callback applies. So, what the employer is relying on uh, part of the language is to be available for standby or telephone consultation. And this language has been in the collective agreement since two thousand eight. So, what what the practice is? The employer puts one of our members on standby for the full week, and and they're responsible to answer any calls that come into that phone. Um, when they put in, so they were told they wouldn't get compensated for any phone calls uh, prior, but they also do emails. And there's also, uh, there's also permits uh, that are uh, required to be filled out and, and, and approved for, for certain things around the port, whether it's diving or whether it's a crane operation or something like that. So there's a, there's a significant amount of uh, activity that happens around that phone currently uh, that has evolved since 2008. The employer only pays the one hour for every eight hours on standby. Uh, the the grievance is basically, um, you know, there's 60, 70, 80 hours of overtime that's worked each week. And the grievance is basically putting in for what overtime has been denied. But this, this is so disruptive to the members' life. Uh, they, they can't eat a meal without, you know, the fear of getting, uh, getting disturbed by, by this telephone call. For someone calling, because every every call got to be answered, they wake up in the middle of the night and, and grab the phone, careful that they've missed a call. They're they're in the shower with the curtain half open so they can peek out at the phone, and uh, then when they they perform work through through the phone, whether it's emails or permits or talking to someone to coordinate an emergency response with a vessel and giving the vessel a place to uh, to berth, um, they're not compensated for that work. That's, that's part of the one hour for every eight hours, which is you know, fairly significantly less than what the federal uh, minimum wage is. <laughs> so I mean, my plea to, to the employer is to, to have a look at what they're doing to their employees and, and have a look at how they can better uh, provide that service to, uh, to, to the public without uh, taking away and affecting someone's uh, you know, uh, personal time off. And uh, and affecting their, you know to anxiety level when they're carrying that
1: phone. Sure. It reminds me of truckers that are sitting waiting to be loaded or offloaded, not getting paid. Uh, And in addition, last word for me is, you know, I find it odd that that's such a heavy bargaining chip is they want you to uh, do away with the grievances that have been filed. And in Mount Pearl, the union wants the potential for discipline for safety violations to go away before they sign an agreement. It's an odd way. It's an odd thing to have as a sticking point, isn't it? Because not as much about rate of pay increases, sick days, leave days, uh signing bonuses all the rest of it there are two interesting sticking points
2: yeah it is about
14: power power sure. the employer sees it as, as their power and uh, you know it's a, it's an old-school mentality in, in, in from what i'm seeing from employers uh from w- w- mostly collective bargaining we do but uh you know it's stuck back in in the 80s in, in their in their mindset with regards to labor relations and i'm hoping that uh through some publicity that People who are sitting on that board of directors for that work will, will look at it and say, you know, we, we want employees that are healthy and, and happy and, and not being forced to, to work overtime without being compensated.
1: Appreciate the time and the updates morning, Chris. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Patty. Take, Take care. good care. Bye-bye. It's Chris Bossy, VP of the Union of Canadian Transportation Employees. Last break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Last word goes to line number one. Good morning, Juan. You're on the air. Oh, yes. Hello, Patty. How are you doing? Doing very well today. Thanks, Juan. How about you? Um,
13: uh, couldn't be too much better. Uh, my wife and I are sitting here in our hotel room looking out at the uh, intercoastal waterway here in uh, Riceville Beach. Uh, we're spending a couple days here at the famous blockade runner in Riceville. um... Let's see, this side of the building is the intercoastal waterway. The other side uh, is the uh, Atlantic Ocean. So it's lo- it's looking pretty good. And uh, just uh, I'll be real quick. Um, was calling to go ahead and to um, wish myself happy birthday. That's one of the reasons why we're down here. <laughs> and um, uh, also uh, ask how everybody's TAMs are doing. Um you know, back in the province, we understand that it's been quite, quite warm up there, um, uh, this summer and I hope everybody's doing well, but, um, um, locally, I guess, um, just want to make a quick comment. Um, health and fitness is extremely important to my wife and I. And, um, uh, if I'm not mistaken, the tax, On the the sugary drinks, the soft drinks, that goes into effect. Is it uh, Thursday of this
1: week? Is that correct? September the 1st. That's right.
13: Okay. Okay. Well, I just want to go on record. Um, I am 100% in favor of it. In fact, I think it should be at least double. Um, I think people are very much aware um, that there's a tremendous epidemic of obesity um, and uh, health-related problems in the province. And so um, while I consider this a really good start, I hope uh, perhaps in the future they can go ahead and even increase it, um, you know, if it does uh, end up having the desired effect of uh, perhaps helping people rethink, um, you know, how much money uh, they're spending on something that is just, uh, in my opinion, one of the worst things that they could put in their body. So well,
1: it really depends on whether or not it has the desired outcome of shifting people's purchasing decisions. The other question being asked is, where does it stop? Because it's not just sugary drinks that would have an adverse health effect. There's other things on the shelves of the grocery stores and the corner shops that are the same thing insofar as potentially harming your health. So that's what people wonder is, where does it stop? and do government pick winners and losers by simply promoting a tax are there other policies and programs that can encourage healthy eating with simply applying a tax generally you know, whether it be syntax on cigarettes and alcohol, for instance, it hasn't necessarily worked by itself to curb drinking and smoking. There was a bunch of different programs and policies and changes to packaging and labeling and hiding them away and uh, safety messaging and education that went with it. On this one, we simply th- it feels like we're just talking about a tax. Just because of the time on the clock, we're pretty much running out of uh, time this morning, but I'll give you the last word, Juan well
13: um I think those are um you know excellent points you make and everything uh you know let's look and see um uh on how things go um, um you know the next you I know mean, six months or so and uh, you know I just am hoping that it is gonna start to change people's uh um you I mean, know habits of uh um, of uh of of, of um, you know using these um uh, I mean, uh, beverages which have absolutely no nutritional value, and it's uh, in, in my opinion, it's just an unfortunate waste of time. But um, you make really good points, and let's just look and see what happens. But um, hope everybody has a great day. And I appreciate the time. Enjoy the intercoastal waterway. Yeah, we we sure will. And the uh, and the famous the famous blockade runner. In case anybody wants to look it up on the internet, thanks, Very Juan. Famous. Uh,
1: Hotel. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. Take care. Bye-bye. It's always cool one time center from the U.S. of A. All right. Good show today. Big thanks to everyone who supports the program, and you know it. We will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's open line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.